Please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as we continue our study of this book. And while you find your place there, I want to mention a couple of announcements that a couple of them are mentioned in the bulletin, um, and I just want to draw your attention to them. If you are um, interested, uh, you remember every year uh, we have um, poinsettias that you can uh, purchase and we will put on display. And uh, so if you're interested in that, there's information there in the bulletin for, for how you can uh, be able to do that and get a hold of uh, Bonnie Ray. Um, and make sure you do so um, by, uh, by December 6th. Uh, so that's um, coming right up here at the, uh, I think that's next Sunday. Yeah, a week from today. So make sure that you get those orders in if you're interested in having that. And then um, uh, don't forget the angel tree out there. Make sure that if you'd like to get involved in there, uh, that you would um, uh, check out some of those gifts and those opportunities to be able to, to, be able to give. Um, I also don't want you to, to forget that, um, that, I don't know, hopefully you got a copy of the, um, the deacons, uh, candidates for this year. If you're a church member, make sure you, well, whoever, you can make sure you read through this. Church members can vote on deacons beginning next week. And so make sure you take a little time to uh, read through the names and, um, and just in case maybe you don't, uh, don't know all these names, if you happen to be here and your name is on that list, uh, let's see, Stan, is Stan here this morning? No, uh, Kathy, I think she's usually second service, Mike, Jeff, Patsy, I know Pat's here, wave your hand, Pat, all right, Pat, and then Samuel's in the back there uh, in the sound booth, and so those are a couple of our, our deacon candidates, uh, hopefully uh, you know some of these folks, if you don't, feel free to, feel free to call us, or uh, you know, we can answer more questions about, about who they are, take a little time to read their bios and, and, uh, and who they are, and, and begin praying about that this week so that you can um, vote on that next week. And then uh, finally, the, the last thing I want to mention before we turn to 1 Corinthians 6 is that uh, during the month of December, we are going to uh, offer a reading program that I know many of you have your, uh, your own particular Bible studies or your own um, uh, devotionals that you do, but if you would like to join in as a body, we have a, a reading program, an Advent reading program for the first 25 days of December that we're going to offer to the church family as a way of kind of being able to do something together. 2020 has kept us from being able to do the kinds of things together that we would normally like to do. And so uh, this is just one way, even if we're not physically present reading it, uh, you can know that your brothers and sisters are, are reading this devotional in the morning. And so we're going to uh, try to put it everywhere we can on our media, our Facebook page, our website. Yeah, it's through the Bible app. So some of you use that and already do your devotions out of there. So you'll, we'll make sure you, we point out the one that, that we're doing. You can also access it online uh, or from a, your smartphone or from a computer through their webpage. So we'll get that information out there. It begins uh, this week on December 1st, and uh, if you'd like to join us, we would love to be able to do that together as a, as a church body. If you found your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to read with you the first 11 verses. The uh, title of today's message is Handling Grievances Graciously. Uh, and as we read these verses... Hopefully our lives and, and hearts are challenged. Uh, again, unfortunately, the Corinthians are providing a model of how not to do it. And so we'll kind of learn from some of the things that they're doing wrong and hopefully not repeat them in our own church and in our own individual lives. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? A brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, there are lots of ways that we can handle grievances or conflicts in life. There are a lot of different opportunities. I can't remember if I've told this story before, but it was an example of, from my childhood of how not to handle uh, a grievance. Uh, as the oldest brother, I uh, was frequently the one getting in trouble for beating up on and wrestling with and pounding on my younger brothers. It usually, I usually didn't set out to hurt them. Uh, but I was an aspiring WWE star, and I needed to try out some of my submission holds on somebody. And so the most likely candidates were these younger brothers of mine. And uh, somehow I would get them to acquiesce each time in uh, bribery or something, or I'd play this game if they were willing to do this or whatever. I remember one particular time I had hurt my brother, the second oldest, doing some kind of a body slam or elbow drop or something. I can't remember what. And he, uh, rather than immediately, you know, go rage monster on me in his, his anger, he kind of let that revenge be a slow burn. And so I was outside playing or doing something, and he had been plotting my assassination for some hours at this point. And uh, I came around a corner, and there he was with a bow and an arrow drawn on the bow. The, the arrow, it was a practice arrow that we'd been shooting in the yard, and the tip had broken off somehow. And uh, so it was a, kind of a broken wooden arrow, and uh, he decided that, uh, that it, that may not be sufficient to, to murder me, so he dipped it in some used motor oil that my dad had with the desire to poison me. I think he wanted my death to be long and slow and arduous, much like his su childhood suffering, I suppose. And so uh, he, um, I came around the corner, and I don't remember how far away, but it wasn't very far away, and he shot me with the thing. And uh, I had, a, you know, clothes on or whatever, and it bounced off my shoulder, but it was, it came in hard enough that it, it cut me pretty good on the shoulder. And so for once, like, I was actually kind of excited because I wasn't in trouble. I was the one, I was the victim this time. And so I played it up as much as I could. And my mom, through several measures of uh, disciplinary action, uh, explained to my brother, no, in certain terms, that's not how we settle disputes. That's not how we resolve conflicts. You cannot shoot your brother with poisoned arrows as a way of resolving conflicts. Well, uh, the Corinthians are going to provide us this morning with another bad example of conflict resolution, of handling their grievances. Uh, what we're seeing here, you probably picked it up from the text, uh, is that they, the Corinthians were taking each other to court. 
Now, he doesn't say what, over, what it was exactly. It may be tied into the last chapter, and this man who had been sleeping with his stepmom, we're not really sure exactly what the issues were, but they were the sorts of issues that should have been able to be settled in-house. They should have been able to be worked out among believers. These were not criminal issues that needed to be taken before a court. These were, these were matters within the church that believers were beginning to sue each other over. Um, one commentator wrote that Roman society was um, notoriously, I'm not going to pronounce this word, litigious, uh, they, they did litigation a lot, uh, and Corinth with its rising class of the rich was even more so. Many ancient lawsuits addressed property matters among the wealthy. Some grievances were simply pretexts for avenging insults and pursuing enmity. Another writer goes on to say, cases began to be heard at dawn and sometimes could be argued as late as sunset. Judges were always chosen from among the well-to-do and most legal disputes revolved around money. The courts frequently favored the wealthy and the elites. And so the problem here that Paul points out with these Corinthians is that they were taking issues that they should have been able to sit down and talk about and discuss or bring in the church leadership and settle. They were taking them outside the church, and they were suing one another. Now, before we uh, get into the outline here, I just want to say, I do not believe that this passage is teaching that Christians can never, ever go to court and file a lawsuit against someone. Uh, I I had a grandmother that believed that. My my grandfather died, and, and there were some... Uh, serious malpractice issues going on, and I just remember um, her saying that the Bible says Christians should never go to court, so I just let it go and it went, it went, went my own way. I don't think the passage is saying that. The context here is that we're talking about matters, conflicts within the church that Paul says they should be able to work out themselves, and they're not. They're taking it. They have unbelievers rule on spiritual things. So why was this a bad idea? I wrote down a few things this morning as to why Paul was um, calling them to stop doing this and stop doing this immediately. The first reason that they were not supposed to be taking each other to court was because of their privileged status. was because of their privileged status. He says there in verse 1, when one of you have a, has a grievance together, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? Much more than matters pertaining to this life. He tells them that they have a privileged status. He calls them saints. Remember he did that very back, very back at the beginning of chapter 1. A remarkable statement giving some of the sin that they were involved in, the stupid things that they were doing. God says, this is not... This is not who you are. You, you are someone, a saint, is, it's the Greek word hagias. It's a, it means a called out one, someone who is holy. He said, this is not who you are acting like this. You guys are saints. He, he says, um, furthermore, that he says that they will judge the world. Listen, you guys aren't willing to judge the problems that you have, but do you know that you're going to be involved in judging the world? The Bible calls us co-heirs with Christ. The Bible says that we're going to be invited in to God's work in that final day. Again, it's not really spelled out what that's going to look like. I have a lot of questions about being people who are going to judge the world. We're we're told that God is the, the final judge. What that looks like of us entering into that, I don't know. 
And even more baffling to me is the statement in verse 3. He says, don't you know that we're to judge angels? I do not know what that means. I'll be honest with you. I spent some time on this this week, and I, I have some guesses, but I don't have a great answer. It could mean, could refer to fallen angels in the last day at the final judgment that we'll be involved in, in that process. Uh, um, one writer says, uh, though we can't be certain as to exactly what this means, believers will experience an end-time dominion of some sorts over angelic beings. Paul's point is to point out the disturbing inconsistency between what they'll be doing at the end of this age and what they're doing right now. It's probable that he wishes only to remind the Corinthians of their glorious end-time destiny, that they will be given dominion over angels. Again, I don't know exactly what this idea or this concept means, but I think Paul's point here is to remind them, listen, you guys are not living up to who you really are. You're going to be involved in far more important, far deeper issues of litigation than what you're dealing with in your midst. And you're not willing to even take these things on? We're going to be involved in like global, epic, cosmic litigation at the end of the age. Be willing to deal with these little things. Don't you know who you are? There was an evening social for army officers and the commanding general of the base had been giving a, given a special award at, at this particular base and proceeded to drone on in a long speech of thanks. A lieutenant mumbled to the woman at his side, why would they award him a prize is beyond me. He's nothing but a stupid old windbag. The woman turned to him, her jaw set, and said, Lieutenant, do you know who I am? No, ma'am. I am the wife of the man you just called a stupid old windbag. I see said the young lieutenant, and do you know who I am? No, I don't, said the general's wife. Good, said the lieutenant as he disappeared into the crowd. <laughs> I think many of the Corinthians were the same boat. They had forgotten who they were. They, were. they had forgotten of their privileged status before Almighty God. You know, when we choose to handle grievances in an unbiblical way, we are in part forgetting our status before God, who we are in Christ Jesus. The second reason that this was uh, such a problem and that their way of handling it was so bad was because of their testimony. It's because of their testimony. In verses 4 through 8, we see Paul reminding them of the foolishness of uh, the way that they're acting because there's a watching world. He says in verse 5, he says, I say this all to your shame. Can it be that there is no one who's among you, who's wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? What does he mean by defeat? What he's saying is that, listen, you are already losing because the watching world is seeing all of your dirty laundry. Now, I am not saying that churches should cover up and stuff and hide, stuff, hide things. But when there are simple matters that need to be worked out, they need to be able to deal with it with one another. And it doesn't go on Facebook. It doesn't go out for the whole world to see. As believers, we have to remember that an unbelieving world is always watching. They don't need more excuses to reject the gospel when we live and act in a way that is not Christ-like, we're giving them more excuses to reject the gospel. 
And that's what the Corinthians were doing. Paul is saying you can go to court and you might even win. You might win your case. The reality is you've lost. You've lost. You've lost your testimony before a watching world. When we resort to unbiblical methods of conflict resolution, we're losers even before we begin. Before we begin. Paul uses some sarcasm there. And he says, listen, seriously, are, is there nobody wise enough among you? Is there, is there, there's, there's nobody that you can talk to that can bring, come in here and, and look at this? He challenges them because of their testimony to handle their grievances with one another and not go outside the church. The third reason that the way they were handling them was so wrong is, and I couldn't think of an eloquent way to say it, so I just wrote down what was on my mind, because it's crazy to think unbelievers should judge matters of faith. It's crazy to think unbelievers should judge matters of faith. It's like going to my, uh, one of my, you know, like, let's say my, my, I got a two-year-old here, and, and uh, it's tax season, and I've got some questions about some deductions and you know, Schedule C stuff or whatever. And it's like sitting down with my two-year-old and asking his opinion on matters of, uh, great matters of finance and taxes and how to handle this or that major life decision. It's foolishness. They don't know anything about, like, I don't know what I'm talking about. They know even less of what I'm talking about here. Why would I go to them and their opinion? And, and Paul says that with the unbelievers here. He says, listen, they don't know Jesus. He's going to talk later and talk about, well, he's already mentioned in chapter 3 that the natural man does not receive the things of God because they're foolishness to him. He says, so you're going to take issues of faith before an unbeliever who cannot perceive the things of God because they're foolishness to him and ask for his insight. Are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. And Paul is wanting them to see just the utter folly of doing such a thing. And he lists in verses 9 and 10 some of the qualities of those who are the unrighteous, those who, uh, before whom they were taking their concerns and, and their conflicts. He says, don't you know that these unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, you're going to seriously take matters of the faith and bring them before people whose lives are characterized by these behaviors? And I think Paul is also, by giving this little list here, he's giving them a gentle reminder. Listen, by the way, these behaviors characterize someone who don't know Jesus. They don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. I think at the same time he's warning them not to take these um, internal matters to people whose lives look like this, I think he's also giving them a warning to make sure their lives don't look like this, lest they prove that they're not actually a child of God. He wanted them to see that you cannot live with these qualities like, you can't be a full-blown idolater or living in homosexuality or given over to greed or a thief or a drunkard. You can't live this way ongoingly without, without, the, without repentance 
and still be a Christian. Like You can't just be okay with sin and day in and day out, shrug it off, blow it off. The Bible is so clear. That's why Jesus, all of his summons to follow him were, were, were deep calls. Take up your cross and follow me. Forsake your old life and turn in repentance and follow me. Paul, while at the same time warning them not to go to people whose lives are characterized by these traits, to find decisions on spiritual matters was also reminding them that their lives should not be characterized by these traits or they will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Paul wants them to understand how serious and, and wrong their behavior was. The final reason that he gives them for not handling their grievances this way is because Jesus has saved us. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. Some of you were like that. Some of your lives were characterized by those things. But instead you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul passionately reminds them of their salvation, that they've been rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been washed, he says. They've been cleansed of their sins. He says, listen, you don't have that old baggage, that old way of living anymore. You've been sanctified. This here is sanctification. We've talked about this before. It, it Frequently in the New Testament, it refers to um, what is our ongoing spiritual growth, becoming more and more like Jesus every day. But it also will use the word in the past tense, which it does here. And that's the idea of being set apart. Remember, he called them saints. That's that picture there of you've been set apart, you've been brought out of this world, you're not to live like them. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, and you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. They had been declared righteous before God. They were no longer slaves to sin, no longer burdened with that unforgiven sin, but they'd been set free by the blood of Christ. And he wanted to remind them that because Jesus had saved them, because Jesus had rescued them, because they were now separate from the world, they should handle those grievances graciously. As I think about what this means for us today, there are some important things that I just want to add here as we close today by way of application. Because it could be tempting to say, well, all right, Yay, 1 Corinthians 6, but they're, they're talking about suing one another. I mean, I've never taking, taken another Christian to court over a problem that I've had with him or her. That, that's not me, and probably maybe we'd see 100% of hands go up this morning. That This is not like a, a strong temptation that you've been wrestling with all week. Maybe it is, and then this passage is super applicable to you. Like Maybe just this week you were getting the paperwork ready. And, and so this passage is speaking to you in very clear and no uncertain terms. But I think that there's secondary application, even if we're not planning to take another believer to court, because just like the Corinthians, we're tempted to handle conflict in the wrong way, aren't we? We're tempted to handle conflict in all kinds of sinful ways, and we do sometimes. I wrote down just a few of them. Sometimes when someone wrongs us, we handle conflict by gossiping. 
talk about some behind someone's back. We circumvent, get on Facebook, air our grievances that way, gossip. Another unbiblical way to deal with conflict is avoidance. Just going to ignore it altogether. Going to pretend like it doesn't exist, tiptoe around it. I understand that temptation. And many believers think that that's the, that's the high road, that's the way to go. Just going to pretend like it's not there. Forget that temptation. Resort to social media. Maybe be passive-aggressive. We're not going to sit down and deal with it graciously, honestly, face-to-face. We're just going to throw out little, little barbs, little jabs when we see that person. A little, you know, avoid them, um, stand them up, little snarky comments here and there. Or maybe by bullying. We're going to push them into submission. We're going to make them agree with me. Uh, and you uh, throw your weight around in such a way that you, you, you kind of beat them into agreeing with you or, or letting it go. That's not God's way of dealing with conflicts. As we think about handling grievances graciously, as we close, I just wrote down five things I just want to briefly touch on. Um, as we think about handling grievances, we must be courageous, must be willing to handle conflict. We must be willing to work through our differences. God has called us to not be like the Corinthians here, but to be bold and to be willing to talk about the things that we're struggling with. Be willing to bring a mediator in as we wrestle through these things. Secondly, he says we must pursue peace. God's word tells us that we need to be people who pursue peace. As we think about when we're hurt, when we're wrong, we're offended, one of the overarching biblical principles that we have to keep in mind is we need to be people who are passionate about maintaining peace. There's a couple of scriptures that came to mind in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as depends on you. Sometimes we can't do anything about it. But as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. He goes on to say in chapter 14, verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Is it your heart and desire to pursue peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you know of brothers and sisters in Christ that you need to go and, and make right some things because you know there's not peace? God has called us to be people who pursue peace. Thirdly, he says that we need to remember to bear with one another in love. We need to bear with one another in love. So often we want to demand our own rights, demand our ways, demand uh, I get what I have coming to me, what we think we deserve in that moment. Paul addressed that in chapter 6 here. He says, in verse 7, he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Jesus said it like this, be willing to turn the other cheek. Why not be willing to step back and say, you know what, I'm not going to make a big deal about this. I don't need to. I don't need to. Uh, I don't need to make this a, a huge issue. In Ephesians chapter four, verses one and two, he says, "I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, and with patience, bearing with one another in love." God. God reminds us sometimes who we are. Um, he reminds us of our hearts. And um, as much as we all think that maybe we're always the easiest to get, get along with, the truth is that we're all sinners. 
We're all going to offend somebody. We're all going to hurt somebody. We're all going to sin against somebody at some point, probably before the sun sets today. And we need to be willing to bear with one another, to be understanding. As sinners living with other sinners, bear with each other's faults. Not accept sin, not ignore sin. Let's bear with one another, knowing that we're different. We're going to blow it. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to do the wrong thing sometimes. We're going to say the wrong thing. Let's be people who bear with one another in love. And then fourthly, we must remember as we handle conflicts to be gentle. As we do talk to one another, as we confront one another, as we share, listen, you've sinned against me in this way. Um, We need to remember to handle that in gentleness. Paul says in that same passage of Ephesians chapter 4 that we just looked at, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called with all humility and gentleness. All humility and gentleness. Not just a little bit, not just occasionally, not just on Sundays, but with all humility, all gentleness. May that be our spirit as we handle conflict, as we address the struggles that we have with one another. May we do it in a spirit of humility and with a spirit of gentleness. Not coming in with uh, a war hammer, not coming in guns blazing and on the defense, but being willing to be gentle with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally, the same chapter of Ephesians 4 reminds us that we must forgive. As we think, think about handing grievances, no one was ever a better person because they held on to a wrong. We know, Proverbs tells us that bitterness eats at our souls. Some of you have watched it. You've watched people literally waste away from a bitter spirit. It will eat you to the core. And usually, usually the person that you're angry with has no idea, no idea that you're so angry. God calls us to be people who forgive as we've been forgiven. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander. This is all conflict. These are all conflict words. They come out of our heart and cause us to butt heads. Let it all be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. <laughs> our Savior went to the cross, and, and He died for our sins. Now, we throw that phrase around, and we're familiar with that terminology. If you've been in church, Jesus died for our sins. But you know what that means, don't you? That if, you're, if you've put your faith in Jesus, that means that there is not a single sin that he held on to and said, they're all forgiven but this one here. They're all forgiven but this one that you're going to do tomorrow. My blood covers this, but man... Not this one. That's pride and that's arrogance to think that. And hopefully and probably most of you don't. You realize and believe that Jesus has paid it all. And that means his blood has covered all of my sins, the very worst of them, the things that no one has ever seen, the things that you could get arrested for but got away with, the the, the things that, that hurt someone very, very deeply. The things that went on for years and years and years. The Bible says that his blood has covered them. His death has paid for them. Let a sin slip through the cracks. 
that an ounce of forgiveness would help. So how dare we turn and do that to a fellow believer? How dare we withhold forgiveness from another child of God? When we do so, we reflect that we really do not understand the depths of the sin from which we've been forgiven ourselves. The Apostle Paul comes to the Corinthians who are fighting and handling conflict in the most awful ways. And he says, listen, this kind of behavior characterized your former manner of life. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by God's Spirit. So let us handle our grievances, and they will, they will be there in a way that honors God, in a way that reflects that we truly understand that we've been completely forgiven by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, may the words of this chapter jump off of the pages from the first century and into our hearts here in 21st century Clare County. We understand that there's a bit of a disconnect between the actual practice that the Corinthians were engaged in by suing each other and maybe what we're tempted to do or we're struggling with here and now. But the reality is that the issue is still the same. That there's always a temptation to handle our conflicts in an unbiblical way. Ignoring them, fighting about them in public, giving people the cold shoulder, refusing to forgive, letting pride and arrogance rule the day, bullying our way, pushing through, demanding our rights. All these are temptations of our hearts, even yet today. God, I thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to pay for even the sin of handling conflict in a way that dishonors you. God, I thank you that even if this week, and I know I have, we've been guilty of acting like the Corinthians and not dealing with a problem in the way that we're, in a godly way, that there's forgiveness for that. Father, help us as we butt heads, as we run into issues with one another. May we be led by your Spirit. May we have the courage to speak boldly. And would you, God, give us the kindness, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, the gentleness, the love, the peace, the patience with one another so that our conflicts can be resolved and that you can get all the glory and honor as we seek to magnify the name of Jesus and to build the kingdom of God. 
are to him who is able to keep you stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you this week as you serve him.